0: This podcast is all about exploring different journeys to reinvention so that you can learn the strategies for how to successfully launch your next reinvention. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the School of Reinvention podcast. I am your host, Roger Osorio. I'm a reinvention coach and speaker and also the author of The Journey to Reinvention, How to Build a Life Aligned with Your Values, Passion, and Purpose. I'm incredibly excited to be here with Alistair who is an author, narrator, and double lung transplant recipient. Alistair's history started off as a typical yuppie. Family, house in the suburbs, big job in the corporate sector, retired at 57, and went off to live in the country. Everything seemed great, but a year later, disillusioned with the passivity of retirement, he went in search of adventure and a deeper meaning to life. He found what he was looking for in a remote flying community of 300 people on the east arm of Great Slave Lake in Canada's Northwest Territories. Cultural differences in a challenging environment ignited a fresh perspective, inspired a new way of being and fueled his soul searching. The experience changed the direction of his life and he wrote about it in his autobiography, Awakening in the Northwest Territories. Two years later, motivated and passionate about helping others less fortunate than himself, he left the North and went to Bangladesh and Nigeria as an international development volunteer. That life-changing experiences led him to many other places, including Jamaica, Guyana, Central America, Southeast Asia, and British Columbia. And each stop seemed to inspire him to write yet another book, Go For It, Volunteering Adventures on Roads Less Traveled, Another book, Budget Packing for Boomers. And another book, Tides of Change. And I'm sure there were other books in there that we'll hear more about later. In 2020, Alistair had a double lung transplant. And with his gift of life, he was able to finish writing and publish historical fiction novel, The Soldier and the Orphan. Alistair and Candice, his partner, live in London, Ontario and have five children and seven grandchildren. Alistair, you've lived quite the life so I'm excited that we get to do this now gosh let's let's break this up let's let's start with life before retirement. you had a few stories to share there that I think were incredibly insightful including going from working corporate to starting your own business. Tell us a little bit about that phase of your life
1: yeah thank you thank you Roger and I'm so happy to be here talking. It was a different world when I grew up when I came to Canada I came to Canada when I was nineteen from England by myself and In those days, we were all getting married at 19 and 20 and getting a little house in the suburbs, the white picket fence, and we were all working hard. We were as ambitious as hell, and I got on that. I got my accounting degree, and I just climbed every two years. I was changing my job for more money, bigger responsibility, and my goal was to be a vice president of finance by the time I was 40. I mean, that was a hell of a... An objective, because I didn't go to university. You know, I got this degree on my own time in the evenings after supper, juggling my family and whatever. Anyway, I I became a vice president of finance. But after about five or six years, I started to think, you know, like, what am I going with this? What after VP of finance? And uh, we were all on that thing. There was uh, an insurance company in London called London Life. And they had a Freedom 55. The whole idea was retirement. So we're all on this thing, and we're all in the 70s and 80s, you know, piling money into our RSPs and stocks and bonds and mutual funds. Everything was doing great. But I reached a point where I thought, you know, I don't know. I'm not happy. You know, I've got this beautiful wife, beautiful kids, wonderful job, lots of money. What else do I need? But I just felt there was something empty. You know, some personal fulfillment was missing. So I thought, well, maybe if I go into business for myself, instead of working for other people, you know, I'm making them lots of money. Maybe I'll go into business for myself. Now, at the time, my son was 20. He dropped out of school. And he's turned out to be a very successful business person. But at the time, I thought, come on, Dean. You and I, we're going to start this uh, freight brokerage business. And in 19... Uh, Ninety-eight, the Canadian government deregulated transportation, and that made it possible for, uh, well, the occupation of freight brokers. So Dean and I started a freight brokerage company. We ran it for 12 years. We worked hard. It was very successful. We became a a full-blown logistics provider with a warehouse, warehouse and distribution. We grew sales to about $12 million, and we sold it because we could. So I retired because I could. Now at the time I had this beautiful country retreat up in, uh, in Grey County in in Ontario. It was 50 acres, five ponds, 18 acres of hardwood bush, and the Rocky Sogeen River ran through the property. It was gorgeous. And I was so happy for two years, but I started to play golf. And I had all this time on my hand. I was looking around, like, what am I? I found myself just filling in the days, you know? I thought, man, there's gotta be more to life than this. I I can't just get up and look around to fill my day in. So I asked myself, you know, is this it? Is this all I'm gonna do for the next who knows how long? I'm only 59. I panicked. I thought, wow, no, there's gotta be more to life than this. You know, I can't do this for the next 20 years. So I thought about it. I didn't want to go back in the city. I didn't want to go back in the corporate world. So I thought, you know, I need an adventure. I need something with a bit of an edge to it. So I started to look around, not knowing where I was going. I just had an open mind. And I found this little opportunity in Canada's north. There's a little Chippewan band. They were looking for a general manager to manage their development corporations. But the exciting thing for me was also, there were diamonds discovered in the Northwest Territories in 1998. Rio Tinto was already there, BHP Billiton, and De Beers had two lakes, Snap Lake and Kennedy Lake. And they were looking to this person to uh, help, well, to participate in negotiating some agreements, a participation agreement and a contribution agreement. And that's what really excited me. So I applied for the job. Had one big long interview, got the job, and July the first, two thousand and two, I flew up there.
0: Yeah, well, actually, let's uh, take a step back for a moment because I want to, you know, kind of just spend a little bit more time on the decision to launch a business because that's that was, uh, I, I imagine, a pretty big pivot. And like you said, you know, you were really looking at what life was like in the corporate world, and it and it just wasn't. Feeling right for you after some time, all these meetings and everything, and then you make this decision to launch a business. And I think that you know there's a lot of listeners who might be considering the entrepreneurship path. They're still on that corporate path and they are thinking about that. Now, the part that I find uh, fascinating about your story, or at least not as common, is that you know you brought your son into this. You're like, let's do this together. And you know you don't see that all the time. You know you you might see someone start their own business and. But to say, I'm going to start it with my son, I think is really interesting. And I just wonder, on uh, for the two of you, what, what did that experience mean? Like, what, how, When you reflect on that experience that you had together, and even going into it, the decision to go into business together, tell me a little bit more about that, because I, I think it's, there's something special there, and it's uh, worth exploring.
1: Well, before I quit my job, I was talking to a guy at work, a Jamaican, and he said, well, I got this little business, you know, I'm, I bring spices up from the Caribbean. That's a while. I'm interested in that. So Headley and I went down to um, to the Caribbean, to the Bahamas. We knocked on doors. He went that way. I went this way, talking to the hotels, uh, because he said, you know, everything everything in the Caribbean comes out of the U.S. mostly out of Miami, but we got some nice products in Canada, you know. So I went around, and it was <laughs> it was really hopeless because nobody was interested. They were all quite happy. The salesman came in from Miami, said, where would you like your new television? And here's my order, but what would you like to order? And that was the way they did business. But I was naive, I didn't know that. So I was talking to this one hotel owner about Canadian salmon, and he was really excited. And he said, wow, smoked salmon and smoked trout, can you get that? So when I came back to Canada, I did some research and i came across a guy called andy lizjack out of north carolina who had smoked trout so i met andy in buffalo um, and got some samples he brought with him samples pricing and whatever and he got talking about what he did before he bought this property and started to catch and smoke trout and he was a freight broker with his wife well in canada Uh, That wasn't legal at the time, but I was very interested. And I found that it was going to become legal on January 1st, 1998, when Canada deregulated transportation. So I brought Andy up, put him up at a hotel for a week, met with him every day, and he told me all about the freight brokerage business. Now, at the time, I also brought in my son, because I thought, it needs two of us. I just looked at the the logistics of handling you know all the phone calls it needed two of us and i thought i i don't have time to go out there and find somebody and i you know who i i know i could trust my son and i know he will work, work hard so that's how we did it and it was a wonderful right from there, he worked harder than me i think he was more responsible for the success than i was over the next 12 years and when i left he went with a carrier a motor carrier and you started up a freight brokerage operation for them and that did extremely well
0: that that's that's really interesting and i and i and i love this part of the story you mentioned where you know you connected with this guy Andy in North Carolina but then you you had him but then you took this really important action he had you know he knew something about a business that you became very interested mm-hmm. in and you took a very important action to say i'm going to fly you up here And I am going to learn everything I can about this business from you in a compressed amount of time. And I think that's really important because
1: that's, I mean, Well, I saw saw the opportunity, Roger, there were no freight brokers in Canada. So I thought, well, this is ground floor. This is wonderful. You know, the universe sent me, the universe sends me lots of stuff, Mm -hmm. but definitely the universe sent me this one. Yeah.
0: And you took the action to go learn about it so you can do something about it. And mm. I think that's, and the way you did it, I mean, I, I think that's just, it, it's what I call like taking massive action, right? You went yeah. out there and and you didn't go small on this attempt. You said, let's do it right. And let's see what this opportunity is. Yeah. And the best way to learn it is to learn it from someone who's done it and who knows yeah. it. And let's just get everything we can out of this guy's head and put it onto paper so that yeah. we can go run with this. And I just, I, I just want to highlight that because I think for anyone listening, If there's something that you want to do that you've already seen someone model and someone do really well, this is the kind of action that you can take. You know, it doesn't have to be exactly this, but some form of like, how do I go learn everything that I can from this person? And that's incredibly important. So I appreciate that part of this.
1: Well, the, the other thing, Roger, is, you know, I said yes to it. I believed in it. But everybody's saying, you know, really? And it's all the what if this, what if that? And I decided to be fearless. I just thought, no, I'm going to say yes. And it was the same thing when I went to Lutzoke. Okay. People were saying, you're crazy, you know. But I felt it was right in my gut. So I, all, I just didn't want to listen to the naysayers. There's always some naysayers, you know. But the journey, if you believe in it, you go for it. Yeah. And actually, one of our books, I said, go for it. It's called Go For It, Volunteering Adventures on Roads Less Travel, because that is my philosophy. If you believe in it, go for it. And I thought, you know what? If it doesn't work out, so what? You just pack it in, find something else. It's not the end of the world. I love that. But I I find fear holds back a lot of people. And I think partly, Roger, it's our society. Mm -hmm. We're all fearful. Because fear sells products. So right from the get-go, mm-hmm. we're conditioned to be fearful. And you hold it, well, what if, what if? Yeah, what if? What ifs usually never happen. But it, it holds people back from realizing their full potential.
0: Yeah, and, and to your point, you know, even if you believe it, if that fear creeps in and it keeps you from doing something, that's, a, that's an even bigger shame. Because it's one thing if you didn't believe in the idea. You know, then it's it's probably better that you didn't pursue it, but to believe in it and then, you know, for fear to come yeah. in and take that away from you, that I think is a true loss. And
1: and then you have regrets. Huh?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Later in life, you, you look back and you say, man, I should have done. I knew, mm-hmm. but I listened to other people and, you know.
0: No, and, and I think right there that. For anyone considering that pivot, this is a really important story and that part of the story, taking that action to learn as much, just going for it to your point, go for it because even if it doesn't work, I love how simply you put it, then just pack it in, you know, and off you go, go on to the next thing. And, you know, truly, I mean, at the end of the day, we can all probably look back to things that we went for that didn't work out. Probably the majority of things we went for didn't work out in the end. But we may just not be thinking about those when, we're, as we're looking at the next step, you know, and we're forgetting mm-hmm. that. I've been there, done that. I have figured a way. And if it didn't work out, it wasn't the end of the world. I actually bounced back, found a better opportunity thanks to yeah. taking action. So I appreciate you sharing that. Now, I want to start taking, uh, going into this current chapter that you're on. You went to this, you know, remote fly-in village that you shared with us. Very small, but... It was on that. And you did some work where it sounds like you leveraged a lot of your experience, your corporate and business experience. It's like those two came together to help you help them. But you made a discovery, you know, in that moment about yourself, that experience helped you discover something about yourself. Can you share with us a little bit about your your discovery of how passionate you were about helping
1: people? Well, I went in as this, uh, you know, seasoned businessman to run their development corporations. And I just wanted to be kept, you know, to myself and I have a fun while I'm there. You know, Monday to Friday, I was walking in the in the office. On the weekends, it was wonderful. I did lots of wonderful things. And, um, you know, I tried to keep to myself. But the thing was, it's okay with only 300 people. But it's one community. Most of them are related to each other. They have this thing about... Pure bloodlines, you know, I didn't want to tell them. Anyway, but the thing is, everybody knows everybody's business. It's just one community. They all party together. It's just like one big family. And I knew everybody there, which part of the family they were connected to. But I was an outsider, I was a white guy. So some of them would knock on my door and say, Can I have a word with you? I want to run something by you. My my initial reaction was, no way. You know, I don't want to be a personal counsellor. That's not my role here, you know. And then, I, of course, I went in there with my best business practices, right, from the south, from my corporate world. Well, they didn't work. I went in there setting up goals and objectives and I had expectations. None of them worked. All they did was leave me frustrated. For instance, we... Um, we ran a couple of fire crews. We had a little fire base up near the airport and we had two crews of eight. So we had 16 people, right? So when the fire crew season started, I said, okay, you get paid on the 1st and the 15th of every month, okay? Well, the next day, people are coming in and say, can I get an advance? It's like, no way. I can't give you an advance. Everybody would want an advance. And then they come back the next day and say, I really need the money, you know. The little guy needs diapers. And it started to get to me because they were all pleading. And I got thinking, you know, like they've worked. They've earned the money. What the hell? Why am, Why can't they have the money? Because of an administrative policy? Like, I what right do I have to say, no, I'm going to pay you in two weeks' time? So I thought, well, well you know. And, of course, many of them, in, in Lutal okay there's nothing. There's just a grocery store. There's no bank, no ATM, nothing. Many of the people don't have a credit card. They don't even have a bank account. Everything is cash. So they would say, can you uh, buy me something in Knife? I'll pay you back. Well, I had a payroll, so I could deduct it from payroll. So one lady came in, the dispatcher at the firebase. She said, we want to go camping, but, you know, our tent is all ripped and whatever. We need a new tent could you buy a tent for me and have it flown in and uh, take it out of my pay? I thought, yeah, I can do that. I can put it on my visa. Sure. Well, you know, after that, everybody wanted to buy me to buy this and this. But when I saw how I could help by sharing, it wasn't sharing my skills, it was sharing my visa card. (laughs) Same thing, though. But they also came in for advice and said, well, I'm thinking of starting my own business and, I'm thinking about moving out of town and they would say, I just want to run by you because they, they recognised, you know, I had this worldly experience and they trusted me and I, and I trusted them. I never dishonoured their uh, sort of faith in me, you know. I was discreet. And that's when I realised I started to feel happy about helping people. It was like I would say, what can I do for you today? Yeah, weird, eh?
0: And, and there was a, one particular story you shared with me that, that really moved you that, that I, I think played a very big role in, in kickstarting the next phase of your life because you made a big decision for the next phase of your life we'll get which we'll get into in a moment. But these you know, these stories, these, this opportunity it sounds like you know from, from what uh, we got to talk about on our prep call, this showed you something about yourself that you did not know coming in. but thanks to this experience you learned about yourself, and I think this is really important for listeners because, I mean, really, life is all about these experiences. And the more of these that we collect, the more we learn about ourselves. It's not even so much for the sake of collecting as much as I think it is for learning more about ourselves, who yeah. we are, what moves us, what drives yeah. us, what excites us. And it, and I feel like, you know, as we get into the the, the second part of the story here... You know, the, the listeners will definitely see how this moved you. This really helped move you and drive you. Can you tell us how now this experience drove the decision to go to Bangladesh and Nigeria and really get started on the next phase of the journey?
1: Well, it's only upon reflection that we see things in a different light. Eh? I mean, in the moment, but you don't. And when I thought about it, I thought when I was in the corporate world, you know, I thought I was successful, and I was successful. But what the hell is successful? Mean? What is success? You know, it's not just having lots of stuff. Here I was in Lutoke with nothing. I was living minimally, monastically, you know, and I, I felt so light and free. And so, well, happy, it's a state of mind, you know, And what it is. I felt content with who I was. I was playing this role, being of service. They were coming to me and I was doing my corporate work. That was going well. Everything was really good. And I thought, you know, I feel, I'm feeling happier now. But eventually after two years, you know, time is such a strange concept. <laughs> I kept thinking about life before I came to okay. and I thought, wow, so long ago. It was only two years, but it felt like 20, you know. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be here the rest of my life. I'm really, um, I'm not I'm not Denny, you know, i got to move on. So I decided I would go and share my skills and experience, just like I did in Lutzoke, okay, but with others in the world even less fortunate. I mean, the people in Lutzoke okay, have lots of money because the Denny mines and the government give them money. So it's not they're destitute and poor, it's just that they're deprived in other social aspects, you know. So when I came out of the north, I pondered everything. I decided, uh, I looked around and I became, it it was a British British volunteer sending agency called Volunteer Services Overseas, VSO. And they had this situation in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and they called it an organizational development advisor. Working with a local NGO wasn't religious, nothing like that. It was part of Canada, part of England's international development. So I went to work with this local NGO in Dhaka, Bangladesh, who was working with the abjectly poor in remote, rural and coastal areas. And they were putting in microcredit programs, a really powerful concept to lift poor people out of poverty. Really, it was amazing. I loved it. So that was very rewarding. It was a two-year contract. So at the end of two years, you know, I came back to Canada.
0: And then, you know, tell us a little bit about, so one of the things that I, that we got into during our conversation was a Buddhist philosophy that you began to develop yeah. and, and pick up. And I feel like what we discussed was incredibly valuable for anyone currently walking their journey to reinvention, wherever On that journey, they are, you know, in their 20s, 30s, you know, in retirement. It doesn't really matter. Some of these ideas that you shared with me, I felt like, wow, to to think in this way or takes so much weight off of, you know, our shoulders and allows you, I think, to walk more freely into what is best for you or what might be right for you. Can you share a little bit about some of those ideas that you think have really played the biggest role for
1: you? Well, let me go back to loot okay. I know it was I was still in Canada, but I felt like i had left the earth and I'd landed on a, a planet somewhere. Mm-hmm. Everything was so different. Eh? The terrain, the culture, the sky, everything. The, everything was so different. Okay. Nothing that I learned in my corporate world worked. As I say, I went there with these best practices, goals and objectives, and all that stuff. And it, it just left me frustrated. I gradually learned to be more like Dene. They live in the moment. They have to. The North is a very dangerous place if you're not mindfully aware at all times. So they live in the moment. They don't worry about next week, next year. Don't worry about pensions, what they're gonna do in retirement. They live in the moment, joyfully. So I started to live like that. So I forgot about expectations. And whatever got done, got done. I started to just celebrate what was done you know so i let go of expectations i started to go with the flow and just to um, be mindful so if johnny was hung over and he didn't he did couldn't do his best today well so what you know he did his best so i learned that doing your best is all there is you know Mm -hmm. and accepting whatever unconditionally accepting whatever is it what else can you do? It's reality. There's no sense saying, "Well, well morning and groaning." It is what it is. So this Buddhist philosophy of unconditionally accepting what is and dealing with it and going from there, and not having other things. Well, he should have done this, and I should have been told, and all that other negative stuff that creeps in. It it disempowers you. So when you yeah. grab a hold of it and deal with it, ah, it's beautiful. You just say, okay, I'm going to move on. Next chapter, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, that, that idea served me incredibly well. You know, this This is a philosophy that I, I also apply in a lot of my life because it, it came in incredibly handy when I was laid off in 2020 during the, at the beginning of the pandemic. And I remember, you know, a part of me wanted to be so incredibly angry and just you know, fight it and be angry and pissed and like, why me? Why is this happening? And all of this. But then I I said to myself something that I say when really difficult things happen. And I say, well, it's already happened. And there's absolutely nothing I can do right now to turn back the clock. And when I just remind myself of that obvious fact, but it's not so obvious in the moment when you're heated or you want to be pissed and you want to be upset, Mm -hmm. that calms me because then I say to myself, I asked myself, actually, so what can I do now? Mm-hmm. Given everything I know in this post bad moment, what are the facts and what can I do? And it allows me to at least be able to start thinking about solutions and moving forward into something else. And I think this idea that you just shared is so important on the on the on someone's journey to reinvention because things will happen and they won't all be good but it doesn't mean that they have to be devastating and right. i feel like what you share is that you know moments could be bad or they could be devastating and and if they're just bad and you move on from them it's obviously way better than if you allow it to be devastating and throw everything off track for your life and you know whatever that might mean to you
1: but let me tell you another story that has a bit of a twist in it as you mentioned earlier in your broadcast, eh? in uh, December 2018, I was diagnosed with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, a very um, life morbidity, three to six years. I was put on oxygen 24 7 and uh, given 18 months, which gave me a best before date of June 2020. Well, with my food Buddhist philosophy, I could accept that. I thought, well, you know, I'm 75. I've had a great life. We all have to die at some point. We all have a best before date. It's just, I know mine now, you know. (laughs) But I accepted that. And uh, my final wish, I thought, okay, I've got 18 months to accomplish everything I want to. I want to go back to England with my family, my kids, grandkids, and uh, my wife, to say goodbye to my sister, my relatives in England, because nobody came. I just came to Canada by myself and we did that in August, 2019. Now it comes up to Christmas, 2019. I know I'm getting worse because my oxygen, I'm going from three liters a minute to six to eight to 12. And I know I'm on the last six months of my life, you know? So I started looking at everything, you know, last Christmas, last new year, last birthday, whatever. And as I moved into January, I was well aware, you know, I wasn't going to see out the rest of the year. But then my kids intervened. They didn't have the same Buddhist philosophy as me. They didn't accept this. And they said, well, what about a lung transplant, Dad? I said, lung transplant? At my age? I don't think so. I don't think they do lung transplants for people. They said, no, you've got to check it out, Dad. So I did. And I found out that... uh, i was fine i so i went on the wait list in june 2020 and september i had a double lung transplant couldn't believe it and if it hadn't been for my kids i would not if it, even my doctor didn't suggest a lung transplant yeah I, I only looked into it because my kids didn't accept my buddhist philosophy <laughs> it's amazing it, it's, <laughs> there's got to be a big lesson there somewhere roger
0: there i i think there is and i I, and i think that you know they it, it it's aligned you know we talked a little bit about this i think it's still aligned i think they they were also being buddhist in just a slightly different way because what they accepted was based on what they knew and they knew something you didn't know so for them it was like well why not accept that there is a solution dad (laughs) you know why not accept that there is a solution and then you're like wait a minute there's a solution yeah and so you know they i feel like they did this too it's just that they did it from a place of just knowing about a possibility that you didn't know which i think is really you know you know goes to something we talked a bit about but just the power of community the power of family and the power of having all these all these different perspectives and different people who can share different things with you including your kids who can share something with you that you were not aware of and then bring a new possibility into your life and the way you, you know, put it a gift of life, um, that they were able to present you with.
1: And, you know, being open-minded,
0: Yeah,
1: I've always said yes, you know, yeah. to all the doors. I said, yes, I don't I never say no. I always say yes, we'll check it out, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So I think that
0: it, it's, it's a beautiful story of how your, your kids simply knew of another possibility and they accepted that. And they said yes to that other possibility on your behalf. And they very uh, much, very strongly, no doubt, encouraged you and welcomed you into that solution. <laughs> it's like, basically, you're doing this, Dad, one way or another.
1: <laughs> you, you could call it an intervention. Yes.
0: Yep. There you go. We'll, we'll, we'll call it that. Since we're, we're speaking about your, your kids here, let's talk about something else that uh, another great story you shared, because there's another part of your journey that I wanted to talk about before we wrap up this conversation. Um, and that was, you know, you becoming an author. And how that started. And and once again, your kids, you know, came uh, to, I don't know, the rescue is the right word, but they, their intervention was what helped create the or pave the way for Alistair Henry, the author. Tell us a little bit about that story.
1: On my last day before I left London to go to Lutokai, my daughter gave me a journal. And she said, "Here, that. I want you to write in it because I know it's going to be very different up there from down here. I'm just curious. So I said, no problem, Nicole. I will make sure. So I did. As soon as I got there, I started to write. In fact, before I even got to Lutzoke, when I was in the uh, hotel in Yellowknife, uh, awaiting my flight the following morning, I started to write because everything was so different. And I continued to write every day. Initially, out of a sense of obligation, I thought, "Well, yeah, Nikki's going to ask me. You know, how's it going, Dad? Can I, uh, can I read?" So I thought, well, "I'll just." Go. But the thing of it was, everything was so new. I felt like I was in a new world. Everything, everything—the work, the community, the land, the fishing—I was scribbling away every night. So it didn't take me long to fill the journal. Then I started to write notebooks. And I carried this on for two years. So when I left, I had all all these notes and Nikki's journal. And I thought, well, I just can't dump it on her door and say, here, read this. You know, it wasn't really. It was really intelligible, right? Unintelligible. So I had an idea. I thought, well, I'm going to put it all into a big Word document, clean it up. I mean, some some of it I can delete. But some of it are really neat stories in here. They started and they continued. So I decided I would go to a little place by myself, hold myself up, and I went to Cuita in Costa Rica on the border of Panama. And I ordered, I booked a guest house. And every day I just typed all these words from my notebooks and journal into Microsoft Word. And when that was done, I started to read it and slice it, move it around a bit delete stuff that didn't go anywhere and then tie stuff together and try to make a story of it so i carried on doing that but as i was doing that you know i realized how i had changed how different my reaction was in the early days to the later days and that sort of became the arc to the story of the story of this white man so i called this little thing white man on the land mm-hmm. it, and it started when i went into lutz and when i flew out wow so i i printed it off gave it to my daughter and some other people and they all said you know wow great great story but it causes the reader to say like well, who, who the hell was this man that went into lutz you've got to tell him more people want to read no you know what was your background where did you come from and think what did you do afterwards you know so i started to write and this ended up to be a complete biography of my life that i called awakening in the northwest territories and that was the start of my life as an author now in the corporate world i'd written but always corporate reports you know budget variance report so i'd done a lot of writing and I was used to sort of writing concisely, you know, no fluff, getting to the point because that's what you do in business, eh? Mm-hmm. all the business, corporate. So that helped. But and the same thing in Bangladesh. And I thought, you know, I'm going to write about my experience because I'd like to encourage other retirees mm-hmm. to consider uh, sharing their skills and experience by volunteering rather than staying home and playing golf and cutting grass. And that's uh, it ended up to be volunteering adventures on roads less traveled. And the rest of the books. Yeah.
0: Wow, I you know, I, I really love that story because I think there's uh, a group of listeners that are probably considering writing a book. And in their and in our in their mind, and I say our minds because in it was once in my mind as well before I wrote the first one that oh, well, this is a monumental task to take on. And, it, and it's a difficult task. It's not an easy task, but it's a doable task. And your story just shares that, you know, you, you didn't even go into it with that intention. You focused on one part of it first. Let me capture stories. And that's actually one of the things that I learned in the manuscript writing course that I was a part of was that just focus on capturing stories at first. The stories will become the book. But you need to capture them. You, they have to be somewhere so that you can go through them later and turn them into a book. And I feel like the, these journals that your daughter gave you became your capture device. It's where you captured all the stories. And to your point, the transformation that you went through in that experience and how you changed.
1: And uh, what amazed me, Roger, how everything is archived in the brain. When you start, you go back you know, to your early childhood. It's all there. It's just that we don't think about it every day. It's in our brain, though. And I was so surprised when I started to think about it. And I sort of, you know, through meditation, too, I started to go back. I pictured going out of my back door. And I started to feel, smell, you know. I mean, it was a different world back then in Bolton. It was dirty, dull, dreary. We had a a guy used to come down our back street and light the gas lamp every night, you know. And you got smell all this dog shit because nobody was pick, nobody had a pooper sk- scooper, nobody picked up their dog droppings. Three, so there was all these smells that they're in there, they're in your brain, archived. Yeah. Oh so it's wonderful. It was, it's delicious pulling them out, writing them down. You know, it's a wonderful.
0: Well, Alistair. I, I, well, I just want to thank you for for this conversation. So many key highlights here, and I, I just want to quickly, I mean, there's so many, but I want to go through some. You know what you said about expectations i think is so incredibly powerful that they can kill fulfillment and i and i think that's the takeaway i would want everybody to you know walk away with because that's a big lesson that i feel was a key theme throughout your life in many different moments that allowed you to just go for it because rather than having expectations you went for it and to your point to use your exact words look if it doesn't work out just you know pack it in and move on to the next thing and so I want to leave everybody with that big idea, because on the journey to reinvention, I think that is a key philosophy that will help you move from one stage to the next. But more importantly, it helps you move in the first place rather than allowing fear, like you said earlier, to hold us back. And even when we believe in something and keep us from doing something that is important to us. So thank you again for your time. For those uh, listening in, in the show notes, you'll find all of the links to learn more about Alistair and his books. And, you know, uh, all the ways to stay in touch with him. Uh, So thank you again. I appreciate your time.
1: My pleasure, Roger. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Reinvention podcast. Again, I'm your host, Roger Osorio. If you're ready to start your journey to reinvention and want to walk the path with others, visit www.rogerosorio.com and go to the School of Reinvention to check out for yourself how a community-based coaching platform can help you begin your next reinvention. You can also go to rogerosorio.com to purchase my new book, The Journey to Reinvention, and receive some exciting bonuses. Until next time, make your day great.